The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod, Europe is in crisis, China is on the brink. We're talking global energy supply and the investing opportunities with Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass. Owning the producers of oil and natural gas is, is, are, is a very interesting proposition for the next decade or so. And on the road again, employees are gearing up for an office reunion at their employer's request. But it's not your 2019 9 to 5. Journalist Joanne Lippman. If it wasn't clear already, it is absolutely clear now that there is no going back to quote unquote normal. And who's got the power in this new work world? With Corn Ferry Vice Chairman Alan Guarino. In the long term, employers are going to be disadvantaged if they think they have an upper hand on employees. They don't. Those stories plus West Coast fast food might be getting a price hike. Twitter and Elon Musk continue to spar, as always, and Peloton's stock lost its COVID momentum. And in the FitFam, Peton's not alone. person yelling at me from Peloton didn't know when I was slacking. Really? I guess maybe they did. I would like to slack. I hate exercise. It's Tuesday, August 30th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Joe Kernan this morning. Becky and Andrew are off today. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice I always learn something from you, Joe. And we, I was on Fast Money last week. And I thank you for covering for me so on vacation. We, do you know how some cities in this country have like sister cities over in like Italy or we're something? We're like, uh, we're like that. We're like that. You like sit San here. San Francisco and Cambridge are sisters. Exactly. You're, you're here sometimes in the morning. It's three hours. I get to go there, but it's still so hard. Getting the short it's still hard here. to come back in here to, to make yes. the commute twice. But, but it's I, worth it. And I'll do it for you whenever. And I'll do it for you. Okay, thanks. Peloton, think about this a lot, announcing uh, that it is delaying release of its annual report on its financial performance. The company said uh, in a filing it needs more time to sort out accounting tied to its restructuring efforts before releasing the, K, uh, the 10K. Peloton says it has to figure out the financial impact of parts of its turnaround plan, including moving away from in-house deliveries uh, and warehouses. I've, I've tried to go back in time to, to, to figure out how so many of us, it was almost mass hypnosis that, that you could believe that people were gonna pay to watch someone yell at you on a TV screen, a subscription fee month after month. I- to be I, on a bike. Who I thought that this, was? I think the subscription part of the business made sense. I think that there was this, you know, everybody fell under this spell That's that people I mean, continue like, buying the hardware. And not go back to, to and, and, gyms. And not go back to gyms. They and need to that go the to hardware gym. sales would continue, which is the flywheel, right, for the software. And so that part of that piece of the puzzle fell apart because everybody bought one. Yeah. Who's going to buy the one? The person yelling at me. And Peloton didn't know when I was slacking, really. I guess maybe they did. I would like to slack. I hate exercise. I hate it. I, everything. But you exercise so regularly. I have to. But I have to. I have someone that makes me do it at the gym. 
at the gym. To yell at you in person. So you respond to, to yelling at person, but not yelling. Yell, but, you know, he knows how many reps I do and if I finish all the sets and, you know, I get 30 seconds between. It, it, that's, that, for me, that's the only way I can do it because I'm, I don't You're like exercise. I don't like exercise. I'm self-motivated. I want to hook up a bunch of things. Have you, wouldn't that be nice to hook up a bunch of like, things and go, you know, like in the old days when they strap like that fabric I want strap to, around your belly yeah, and it like shakes you. That'll work or stimulate your muscles <laughs> and just you don't have to do have anything. Have you tried the shake weight? The what? The shake weight? No. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it's something that you might do because it looks easier than I, I, People go back to gyms. Plus, you know what else there is? A sauna. And you know if you go in a sauna four times a week, you're just less. Water weight. Yeah, but you're less likely to get dementia. Really? Honest to God. Yeah, you can Google it. Sauna, huh. dementia. That sauna. is news you can use. That is news you can use. Tesla has filed a lawsuit to challenge a Louisiana law that prevents vehicles from being sold directly to consumers. Tesla has been fighting similar laws that protect dealerships in other states for years. The carmaker settled a case in Michigan in 2016 that allowed it to sell directly to customers. In Texas, Tesla has galleries where potential customers can learn about its cars, not, uh, but not buy them. Buyers must then go online to actually purchase a vehicle. And... Uh you see a lot of Teslas where you are? Yeah. Every other, every other. I'm going to take a video of it when like six of them pass me in a row. I'm gonna They're much it. more common, especially with the Model 3. I mean, you see Model 3s. Car services have Model 3s. I've, I've been, I just watch now and I, someone will be coming around a car and go, I'll bet you that's going to be a Tesla. And it is. In other Tesla news, the National Labor Relations Board says that the company violated workers' rights when it told employees that they couldn't wear shirts with pro-union insignia while on factory floors. The NLRB is now mandating that Tesla, in, in the agency's words, cease and desist from maintaining and enforcing the overly broad team wear policy that prohibits production associates from wearing black union shirts. Tesla had previously argued before the Labor Relations Board that its dress code uh, was meant to prevent workers' clothing from causing mutilations to the cars or the car seats that they were building and to help managers uh, in their words, easily determine that employees are in their assigned work areas. So maybe you can't see them as well with the black union shirts or something. Like well, then you have to wonder if they have uniforms. I mean, if dress was so important, then, then there would be a uniform required. If there's no uniform required, then I think this is very difficult to enforce. The union issue is interesting to watch. Yeah, uh, definitely. As, it is the time, right? Workers have the power. Workers right? have the upper hand. But many of the the wokest companies that you would think would be for unions. I, I think of Howard Schultz. Yeah. And they're like, you know, I'm only willing to go so far with my virtue signaling. When it comes to this, I got to draw the line. I'm sorry. I'm going to be a capitalist. It, it's just funny to watch, is it not? The irony of it is Amazon. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Do what I say, not what I do. Making headlines this morning, Elon Musk has sent a second deal termination notice to Twitter. Musk had said in early July that he was pulling out of his $44 billion deal to buy the company. The new notice, detailed in an SEC filing, gives additional reasons for terminating the deal. Among them, Musk said the misconduct alleged in the recent whistleblower complaint is likely to have severe consequences for Twitter's business. California's legislature passed a new bill yesterday that would create a government panel to set wages for an estimated half million fast food workers in the state. The so-called FAST Act would establish a panel with members appointed by the government and legislative leaders composed of workers, union reps, employers, and business advocates. They would set hourly wages of up to $22 for fast food workers starting next year. 
Future wage increases would be tied to the Consumer Price Index. Governor Gavin Newsom now is until September 30th to decide whether to sign or veto the bill. He hasn't taken a public stance yet, but his Department of Finance opposed an earlier version of it. Representatives from McDonald's, Yum Brands, and Chipotle have all lobbied against this bill. People are saying that, you know, if, if you're not going to pay a, a living wage, you, sh you shouldn't be in business. And well, then, then don't go. I mean, then... Okay, then, then we will have no more fast food. That's fine. And, but, you know, there are people on this side of things that that would think that's a good means to an end too, to just get fast food out of business since it's so right. unhealthy and causes obesity and everything else. So um, just about anything can be argued in this world uh, today. Sony has set up a dedicated PlayStation uh, mobile gaming unit in a major push to diversify beyond consoles, which uh, has faced supply chain issues. The Japanese gaming giant launching PlayStation Studios mobile division and said it's gonna run independently of the console business a company also acquiring mobile uh, game developer Savage Game Studios. And the move comes after a tough second quarter for Sony's gaming division and the company's downgrading of its full year profit forecasts uh, for that business as the COVID-induced boom uh, during which people were stuck at home playing. So many reversals. So many. We, we, exactly. We, Everything we, is we didn't know how great it was going to be for so many different things. For so many businesses. Right. And now without the pandemic, they're lost. And, and looking back on it, it makes complete it does. sense. It does. Who but would have for, ever thought that we would the be entire, locked up? Not for the entire NASDAQ that they hit a high in the middle of a pandemic and then sell off 40% when there's no more pandemic. That's, that's perverse. <laughs> it is. But that was government stimulus, right? Right. Right. Inflating everything. Next on Squawk Pod Global Investor, Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass. We're in a new era with China. They invade in the next year or two. They invade in the next three or four. And what does that mean for U.S. national security with our reliance on Taiwan Semi for chips uh, and our reliance on China for um, antibiotic production and, and blood pressure medicine? But then the flip side is we actually hold the economic nuclear button in the United States. The European energy crisis, the China factor, and how very intertwined all of our economies are. That's right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Melissa Lee. Becky and Andrew are off today. Joining us now in studio, Kyle Bass, Heyman Capital Management Founder and Chief Investment Officer. What are you doing in town? Uh, just uh, seeing some friends and hanging out with you. Yep, that's right. And we, appre uh, we appreciate that. We we've talked about, what have we not talked about uh, with you? <laughs> 
It's, and there's, but there's usually something that you're, uh, disturbed isn't the right word, but you've got your eye on, on what could be a complete kind of storm, could it be, if I can't say that word, a, a complete excrement storm over in, in Europe in terms of energy. And yeah. they, they, dug, they dug their own, the situation they're in, a, a mix of metaf metaphors, but I mean, they brought this on themselves. They did, uh, over a long period of time. You know, the, the, the desire for the world to engage in alternative energy is one that I think we all uh, would love to see happen. But uh, there are certain scientific realities and there are certain um, narratives that get pushed by NGOs and, and teenagers. And I think we've been taking Greta. policy cues. Greta from uh, NGOs and teenagers for a long time. And I think it's important that, look, I launched a, a um, conservation-based private equity firm last year. I care very much about our planet, so don't get me wrong. Just because I'm from Texas doesn't mean that, you know, I love oil and gas, but there's this, uh, du there's a duality. You have to have uh, more oil and gas for a longer period of time than everyone believes for us to get into a proper transition policy. And even Jamie Dimey said it the other day, you need to be able to get it through your thick skull that your that demand for hydrocarbons is inelastic. It will keep growing. And uh, demand for alternative energy will keep growing. It's the absolute earliest you could see where a major amount of our energy doesn't come from hydrocarbons. What, what do we get renewables now, 3%? Yeah, it's, uh, We've been all in, and it's it's still low single digits. But low single it, digits. It, these transitions take 40 years, Joe. The move from coal to natural gas took 40 years. These ta they take a very, very, very long time. So and that's past we can't 2050, just, then. Yeah, we can't just flip a switch. So I, I, you know, we believe that you won't see any kind of um, decline in organic or or inelastic hydrocarbon demand. Uh, south of 2037, 2040. So, are and, we, and that's if we really adopt these things at, at record pace. Are we full bore right now in this country? Is, is obviously there's supply chain issues with parts. There's labor issues. We can't get guys on the rigs. Are there still hangover effects from from government policies and overregulation? Are there still hangover effects from oil CEOs not wanting to commit long term because of uncertainty? Are those all part of what's happening? I think if you if you talk to the oil CEOs, big oil, um, what they'll tell you is they are they do have targets to get to carbon neutrality at a certain date in the future. And um, you, you know, the net zero alliance from the banking sector is trying to kind of fat shame the oil companies into uh, and, or in the banks into, into, into balancing their portfolios of, of loans to go, you know, uh, green or, or, or black. And so all of these policies continue to roll forward, i.e. the big oil companies to meet their net, net zero neutrality targets, they're going to actually act to be sellers of decent properties. And so this will be the golden age for the next decade or so of the family office investor in hydrocarbons. I mean, the institutions continue to pull back. The family offices and some private equity firms are, are leaning in, but not enough, Joe. We need, we need much more. In terms of what's going on with Europe and, and soaring energy costs there, how do you see that playing out? I mean, is there, is there a trade that you're in um, right now, an investment that you're in that sort of gives us a glimpse into, into how you see, I mean, is it a re recession? Is it, uh, I mean, w what's the trade there, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what, let's just say Germany spends as a percentage of GDP on energy, um, what used to be about 1%, it's gonna be eight and a half, nine percent 9%. You know, you, those are enormous moves in the macro world uh, for what they're gonna be spending. And 
if Putin decides to do something uh, crazy this winter, i.e. Uh, do some unscheduled maintenance on, on Nord Stream 1 or something like that, I don't know where these prices go. You know when we get into peaking plants in the U.S., when, when we have electricity shortages, prices move exponentially when you're looking for that marginal unit. So the marginal units this winter are going to be potentially very expensive. We have already seen the pubs in the U.K. are saying two-thirds of them may close. Uh, people are saying they're going to go without heat this winter. Uh, people's bills in Germany and France are going to go up 8 to 10x. Imagine your electric bill moving or your energy bill moving uh, 8x. You in know. a short amount of time. Yeah, I so. mean, these, the, 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 the middle class, or let's just say the average citizen, can't possibly afford that. And so I think you're going to see, um, yeah, I think you're going to see a rift in society. I think you're going to see more frictional frictions happen in society. I mean, that's what happens, I don't want to say often, but... Oftentimes, the roots of, of civil unrest lie in huge spikes in inflation of some sort, whether Correct. it be food or fuel or maybe a combination of both. How do you see this playing out in a developed nation, in a developed continent? Yeah, but it'll happen in the developed world and the, and the emerging world, yeah. right? Um, what you're seeing now is these LNG cargoes are being bought by the developed world that can afford them, right? You have Japan competing with China, competing with Europe, all in desperate need of these LNG cargoes, and what does that do? It prices out Africa, right? It prices out the real poor. And so the, the interesting thing is, if, if you follow this all the way through the rabbit hole that I'm trying to take you in, is these policies that are ESG-driven and morally-driven that we should convert everything to alternative energy tomorrow um, are going to end up starving the poor children of the world, like it's, it's, and killing many of them. So it's, it's, it's counterintuitive that that could actually happen. And that's what we're seeing, Melissa, with the prices at $1,000 a megawatt hour, 1,000 euros a megawatt hour. You know, you're going to see you're going to see real problems in Europe. I can't believe it's not on the front page of every paper every day. We, we are fat and happy as advanced societies. And, and a lot of that is due to, to hydrocarbons and the life that it, it's, it's allowed for us. And if you're going to change that quickly, and it may already be happening and are there going to be i mean real disturbing things to watch in europe do you think rationing uh, people not being able to heat their homes food problems supply but you mentioned in, in the developing world how how tough it, it could be yeah these are all possibilities aren't they and, and then i think do you see 60 minutes if, if they knock out a grid if china you know we can we can bring in china to this or if, if a if a bad actor decides to try to do something cyber or otherwise mm -hmm. To our grid, we're, what do you see? Cape Fear. You're going to learn about loss. Well, let's, You're going to learn about loss. Let's not go there. Let's let's stick with, you know, the macro as it stands today is hard enough. But there's black swans. We had a, we had a no, pandemic no. that didn't happen in a hundred years, right? We had a financial crisis that didn't. I mean, there are things that can make us realize that we take a lot for granted. Yeah, I, but the, this hydrocarbon policy has been a slow burn until Putin's invasion of Ukraine, right? Uh, that accelerated the problem and what he's done with Nord Stream. Um, has he been planning this for a very long time? If you look at his negotiations with Germany and Gerhard Schroeder, one could say that this was a long-term plan that Putin's had and he's just finally living his best life. Um, but I think when you look at the power prices, it's not just this winter, Joe. This hydrocarbon problem is a multi, multi-year problem. If you look at the entire year for baseload energy or baseload power in France for 2023 and 2024, those numbers are absolutely astronomical. Uh, and so this isn't just a winter of 2022, we'll figure out how to get through it. Uh, this is something that we, we as a developed world must spend more money 
and more effort and spend all of our focus, I think, on, on small modular nuclear because that technology works and it is, it's actually very green. Are you an investor in nuclear right now? I'm not. I'm You're not. You're not? No. So how do you, I mean, I, I hate to just say boil it down to a trade, but how are you investing in this thesis of yours? There so, must be a way that you're investing in this. I, I think owning the producers uh, of, of uh, oil and natural gas is, is, are, is a very interesting proposition for the next decade or so. If you look at the forward curve, the forward curve in the U.S. is suggesting that uh, gas prices come down in the next couple of years to $4 and, and below. We're at $9 plus today. Um, but you know, Europe and Japan and Asia aren't going to have uh, a decline in their uh, LNG uh, um, demand. And so I think you're going to see as the U.S. exports more and more LNG, U.S. gas prices are going to stay elevated. How do you see, though, I mean, ESG policies, policies in the United States specifically, but also in Europe, um, that require these oil and natural gas producers to go more green and to do things that they otherwise would not specialize in. That's not their forte. That's not the reason of their existence. And yet they are forced to go down that path because that is what is required of them by the investing community. Um, is there some sort of discount in their shares right now? I mean, I wonder if, if there's, you know, if we, if we eliminated that, would they be more fully valued? How do you think about that? So I, I don't think there's an ESG discount. I think there's a discount because of the forward curve. If you look at the prices of hydrocarbons out one, two, three years from now, nat gas and, and oil, there's this massive uh, uh, decline in price, i.e. then the investors factor that into their models. I just think the prices are wrong. I think those out prices far, will be much higher. We're fine with China again? The Pelosi thing, we forget about that? Is it, is it okay? What's going on over there? We're not even close to being I think it's clear that we've in a, we're in a new era with China. I think that um, what's happening in Taiwan, uh, China just uses Pelosi's vision as a reason to ratchet. All they've been ratcheting in one way, in one direction, and it's towards um, the eventual takeover of Taiwan, whether they do it uh, peacefully uh, or, as, or as she said in a speech, you know, peacefully or else. Um, the question is, do they, do they invade? And do they invade in the next year or two? Do they invade in the next three or four? And what does that mean for U.S. national security with our reliance on Taiwan Semi for chips uh, and our reliance on China for um, antibiotic production and, and blood pressure medicine? There, there are some things where there is a reliance that is such a deep reliance on China on core areas of our, call it our existence. But then the flip side is we actually hold the economic nuclear button in the United States. China still uses dollars to interact with the rest of the world for the overwhelming majority of their transactions. And so if China's belligerence gets to a point where we need to do something, uh, potentially engage either militarily or economically, I believe, uh, we should press that economic button and, and uh, remove them from the SWIFT system and use that as a deterrent for China's potential invasion of Taiwan. Those are the things that I think need to be socialized in our, in our government. So do they wait until they build up their parallel SWIFT system? I, you know, you say parallel SWIFT system. So far, well, it's kind of like the old axis of evil, right? You right. have Russia exactly. partnering with China. Yeah. Uh, and you have Iran as a friend of China. And you have North Korea as a potential friend of China. You know, if the bad guys want to go hang out on the bad block, there is not going to be enough of a, quote, swift system for the bad guys uh, to properly operate. So I, I don't believe that that's an alternative. I think that um, I think that their reliance on the globe is still going to be uh, a tantamount to their success. And their global primacy is something that they've convinced 
the academics, some academics in the U.S., the, some other think tanks, and, and uh, even some of the Wall Street analysts. And I don't think that's a foregone I conclusion. I think they have so much leeway, Kyle, and I think we are in a, we're in an appease, not a confront mode here. And I, I don't have to look any further than, I don't know, who do you want to talk about? Uh, 650 million basketball fans? In, in China, I mean, what the Houston Rockets guy, what did he say? You, you're down in Texas. Yeah, what did Darryl, he say? Darryl he said, that, said the that he wanted to support democracy. Slightest, God, for, God I mean, forbid. The slightest thing. That and, he says and, on Twitter, and, I support democracy. Right. And that's just, you know, I don't want to pick on the NBA, but name your multinational. Name us and mass as a country that needs to trade, needs, a, needs those billion and how many ever consumers that you want to count. That, that we need. So what, what kind of power do we really have? We don't have any. You know, Churchill said going into World War II, you know, he's famous for, for his comments from call it 1930 to 1935 and being the, the only one in the UK Parliament saying, does anyone see what's going on here? Germany is looking to basically come to an equal number of planes and, and ships and they're not supposed to be doing this and we're funding them. And is anyone paying attention? Yeah. And at some point in time, they had to pay attention to what was going on with Hitler. Um, and that appeasement, uh, if I'm, I'm rereading this book, uh, Hitler, or I mean, uh, uh, Churchill wrote a series of six books. One is called The Gathering Storm. It's the first one. Uh, and the parallels to the buildup into World War II now, to now, I'm not saying we're going to World War III. I'm just saying that the, the vested interests with US and UK investment into, uh, uh, let's just say, the aggressor, uh, are, the parallels are, are shockingly similar, and the appeasement uh, that's going on to a, a country that bo both of the last two secretaries of state said are committing a genocide uh, and are, are engaging in live organ harvesting, and we all know that their ideology is very different than that of the developed West, but yet we continue to trade with them. Why do we trade with someone that is committing genocide? Well, we just, because we really like profits and we really like cheap stuff. But at some point in time, if it were a smaller country, we would already have stopped trading with them. So the point, is, the point I'm trying to make is, is the appeasement, the investment, and kind of the, the, the capture that China has of all of our businesses and all of our Wall Street heads and, and, um, and, and really our universities and our, our academic institutions is, is frightening. And that's their uh, unrestricted warfare that they engage in. And, and the good news is, is they're not polling so well in the States anymore. You know, there used to be a very, very high favorability rating. It's very low now. Uh, they're polling around with Congress people and, and uh, journalists. Uh, journalists, right? Yeah. So uh, they're in a new place. You asked if we were in a new place. We're in a new place. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, are you heading back to work like I am in a couple weeks? Or would you rather not? The quiet politics of our office return with Corn Ferry's Alan Guarino. You're going to get a certain level of quiet quitting. What's quiet quitting? Every one of us has discretionary energy that we bring to work. There's the amount of work I need to give you to keep my job. And then there's that amount of work that I can give you that I got in the tank that I'll give you if I'm really motivated. We're weighing the advantages for all of our colleagues with Yale lecturer and journalist Joanne Lippman. And if you look at the research, the people who are more likely to want to work at home are women, particularly women who have kids at home, um, people of color who have to deal with, you know, code switching, who may live further away. We're back right after this.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC today with Melissa Lee and Joe Kernan. Here's Joe. And many U.S. workers, uh, including those at Disney, Tesla, and Apple, are preparing to, uh, to work more days in the office after Labor Day. For more on this, let's bring in former USA Today editor-in-chief Joanne Lippmann. She's now a Yale University lecturer. It's getting a little confused, and a CNBC contributor, I'll talk to you in a second, Joanne. And Alan Barino, vice chairman of global uh, consulting firm Corn Ferry. Joanne, you were a Princeton fellow or something. Now, are you just making the rent, just go Ivy to Ivy? Is that, is that how this, this works at, at some point? I think I'm happy where I am, Joe. <laughs> okay, good. But at, at, anytime you're intro, there's some Ivy League uh, uh, in the name. So we were just discussing, Joanne, what would, how do you get people back? Uh, and are, are businesses really gun-shy to, to try to actually, you know, say you have to do this. Are they, it seems like in the old days, that's what you would hear. Right, right. You know, what's so funny, Joe, it, it, when you and I think about this, right, it, if somebody five years ago or 10 years ago had offered us the ability to only show up three days a week in the office, we would have been jumping up and down like, oh my gosh, what an amazing perk. And now employees are actually protesting having to come in that often. But but here, look, the bottom line is, Joe, that if it wasn't clear already, it is absolutely clear now that there is no going back to quote unquote normal. There is no going back to just five days a week in the office period. It's really, it's, it's dead. At this point, two and a half years into the pandemic, we're not going to see it. And the problem is that we have that there are a lot of reasons to go back that bosses want people to go back that are actually really legitimate reasons. I mean, culture, um, you know, understanding, getting the mentoring that, that you need. If you think about, you know, when I was a young reporter, I started out at the Wall Street Journal. The reason I learned the way that I learned how to be a reporter was by listening to my colleagues in this big bullpen and how they were handling their sources and the right questions to ask, the way to act. And you miss that if you're not in the office. So I get all the reasons why people, bosses in particular, want you back in the office, and they are legitimate. At the same time, the reasons why people don't want to go back are also legitimate, and we've got to pay attention to that. I I just saw a stat by Nick Bloom, who you've probably had on. He's at Stanford, and he's been studying this work from home. And and he said that people just by not commuting are saving 200 million hours of commuting week of of commuting hours per week which is quite astonishing right so this is this is real time that people are getting back um and the other issue i think a huge issue that we're not paying enough attention to is the the inequities of going back to the office it's easier for some people to go back to the office and if you look at the research the people who are more likely to want to work at home are women, particularly women who have kids at home, um, people of color 
who have to deal with, you know, code switching, who may live further away in different communities. You have the, the um, a real, real risk if you're demanding that people come back, that you are going to lose really, really valuable people. Um, mm -hmm. And that the other and the other thing is, right, the people who show up, there's a thing called proximity bias that you naturally are going to be there getting the opportunities, the stretch opportunities, right. the promotions, right. um, the great, you know, and, and so th this, these are really, really tricky issues to deal with. But the fact is, Joe, we, we just can't go back to where we were. Um, I don't think we're going to see sort of, you know, that retro. I think no. the, 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 the old ways are gone. There's nuance to all this, Alan, but is, is there anything you just outright disagree with that, that, Joanne just said all, all good points. How would you, I don't know, what, what, what's the right answer? Do you disagree? Joe, don't, don't necessarily disagree. Jo Joanne covered it at a high level, but let's get into the real commercial impact. So from a, from a statistical standpoint, data says that of those who commute, uh, our survey recently, 97% of those who commute say that they will work more uh, from home than they will work if they return back to the office. So that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, again, talking about impact, there's this thing our CEO came out with a couple of weeks ago. Many others have talked about it. It's called quiet quitting. So here's the deal. As you said, in the old days, you know, you'd come back because the boss said, come back. What's going to happen is those that want to come back, they're fine. We don't have to be worried about them. What we have to be concerned about as leaders is those that don't want to come back. And how do we strike the balance where they do what the corporation believes the company needs to do? But we also do it in a way that they're relatively satisfied. If not, you're going to get a certain level of quiet quitting. What's quiet quitting? Every one of us has discretionary energy that we bring to work. There's the amount of work I need to give you to keep my job. And then there's that amount of work that I can give you that I got in the tank that I'll give you if I'm really motivated and I'm really, um, let's say, empowered. The quiet quitting is what we have to focus on in returning people to work. We have to have those folks empowered. We have to have them really, really engaged. And that will mitigate the negative impact of this, quote, change from this thing where we got to work from home. We had a lot of flexibility. We're losing some of it. I'm not so happy about that. However, my leadership is sort of making up for that gap. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I don't know whether we have uh, AI uh, Alan, that, that can really do the math for us about some of the things Joanne talked about, commuting time that you save, versus um, productivity that I would think might not be as high at home. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but how do you look at the offset there? And, and would we see down the road if, I, I would think if we went to a four-day work week, We'd save money on Friday commuting, but I just, Joanne, there's just no way you're going to get the same amount of productivity uh, out of that. Alan, you, you start, and then we'll go to Joanne. Well, the data is that 79% of employees say if they have to go back to the office, they're going to work less. So productivity is about two things, how, how much time you put in and, and how much outcome and, and results you get. Honestly, I think early on, if we think back to a year ago when we had started to have good data on productivity, what it showed was that productivity actually went up for employees that were home two days a week, and then it leveled off. So we didn't get a, we didn't get a, a, a completely upper sloping graph every day of being home meant more productivity. What we got was people home two days actually were more productive in work than they were when they were going five days a week. And then after that, no extra return. So you, one would say getting people back to the office two to three days a week is not going to have a negative impact on productivity. 
bringing them back five days per week isn't going to increase productivity. At least that's what we know now. Joanne? Yeah, Joe, if, if I could add in here on the four-day work week, there's actually quite a lot of research that's been done, particularly in other countries. And there's a lot of experiments going on now. But the biggest um, experiment to date was in Iceland, where they tried a four-day work week uh, for a period, quite a long period of time. And there was a lot of research done on that. And they found that productivity either remained the same or increased during that time period. And importantly, that mental health and happiness and satisfaction with, with their jobs actually did increase. So um, there's other experiments that are going on now. I do think work week is, is reasonable and it's something that I think more companies are adopting um, and that we'll see more, you know, we'll get more, more uh, research and results out of that. I, I think in terms of going back at what Alan was just talking about in terms of going back a couple of days a week, I think the key there is right now it's seen arbitrary. Right now for employees who are happily working at home and feeling like they're productive, um, suddenly to be told you must be here on X, Y, and Z days, it feels like, well, why? And, and so uh, the companies that are doing this most successfully are understanding that people in for a specific reason so that they understand. And the specific reason is not necessarily like taco Tuesday, right? We're going to have a food truck for you. The specific reason is we're doing this particular project, this collaborative work. Um, and there is um, a terrific research that Columbia Business School did very recently that looked at creativity. And it found that when you are trying to brainstorm new ideas, Zoom is a creativity killer, absolutely horrendous, right? And that people are much better at brainstorming and coming up with novel new ideas in person. So that there's a reason to, to come back in. By the way, though, on Zoom, one of the other points is on Zoom, they also found is that when it came to picking which of those ideas were better, it was fine to do that on Zoom. So there are certain tasks that Zoom is great for and certain things that are in person for. And I think if companies sort of start to parse that and there's a reason to come in, that's going to be a lot more helpful instead of being arbitrarily show, on the, show up on this day. Alan, just kind of quickly, I, mean, I think the last time I was on Squawk, you both were on talking about the return to work as well. And, and I brought up the point, you know, right now, Labor has the upper hand. They can dictate what they want. But if we do go into a recession or softer times or, or we face higher unemployment, which is what the Fed has effectively said, that we will have higher unemployment, um, you know, at what point should workers think, you know, I want to stay at home, but I really should go into the office because there might be a proximity bias, as Joanne had said, and, and when it's time to lay people off, I don't want to be on that list because I'm just, I'm off, you know, at home doing my thing. So two things, the proximity bias is Israel, assuming you've got a company that's biased is to have you in there. Um, on the other hand, there, there is a massive talent shortage. It is going to be a talent seller's market for the next decade or two. So this notion that recessions are gonna change the game, recessions are short-term market corrections. They're not gonna change the game. Now, yes, yeah, people might be a little bit more reluctant to push the envelope with the boss in terms of coming back, but the reality is they're going to vote with their feet if they don't like the environment. And in the long term, and I'm talking 18 months, I'm not talking five years, employers are going to be disadvantaged if they think they have an upper hand on employees. They don't. The employee is the customer today. And you got to think about it from that perspective. I'll leave you with one more piece of data. 
I had a uh, financial services client, Fortune 500, that early on decided to go heavily remote. That particular company let me know about two months ago that the jury is in. They had record earnings, record revenue, and record uh, employee engagement levels. So there's a case for heavily uh, being remote, and there's certainly a case for this hybrid. I don't think there's a case left for you come back to the office. I just don't see that case. All right, Joanne and Alan, thank you. That does it for Squawk Pod today. Thank you so much for listening as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow us here on Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear or you don't or have some feedback, send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.